Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Last year, Mexico had more than 34,000 homicides, the highest in our history. Major drug cartels have divided into smaller, heavily armed groups, and they're also diversifying into other crimes, such as kidnappings and extortions. They're claiming more territories, and they have gained the hearts of many in the population by offering them pandemic assistance. At the same time, Lopez Obrador has refused to get tough on crime, and he has threatened to end cooperation with Washington. Successive Mexican governments from all parties have actually failed to reduce crime and violence in Mexico. Most past strategies, however, focused on targeting top-level drug capos and were criticized by López Obrador, who offered a hugs and not bullets approach. AMLO also pinned hopes for crime reduction on socioeconomic programs, even despite the collapse of the Mexican economy due to COVID-19. To discuss how the success or failure of Mexico's public security environment will affect both countries, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jorge Tello, an intelligence expert who has dedicated more than 20 years in development intelligence and information institutions, and Juan Cruz, a senior advisor to CSIS and a former member of the National Security Council. Jorge, could you please tell us your analysis of the current public security strategy in Mexico? Will it work? And more importantly, why do you think it should matter to the United States? Well, good morning to all of you. I think the main problem is that there is no strategy to analyze. What we have is a set of fixed ideas the president has, such as not fighting drug cartels, betting on social programs, and having daily security briefing. And most programs are implemented based on those ideas will respond to political purposes. No surprise, there are no clear objectives, no parameters to measure their success or failure. But we do see, as you say, that crime trends are still worrying. COVID-19 changed some criminal dynamics, but there are no elements to believe things are better now. By soft parameters, they are even worse. And don't get me wrong, it is important to address the structural social problems that affect the country, and doing so could help changing criminal dynamics in the long term. But I am not sure that the mechanisms in place are effective, and it would be surprising that at this specific case, the bet was on long-term effects since the government tends to prefer actions whose effects are visible immediately. But that is a whole different discussion. However, even if the government's agenda to tackle social issues was effective, that would still not be enough to curb violence in the short term. So, regardless of whether the government actually has good intentions or not, they do not have a sound, comprehensive strategy to change the status quo. What concerns me the most is that they don't even seem to understand basic concepts. They don't seem to understand the difference between the role of the armed force and police corps 
between public and national security, or between levels of abstractions in decision-making. As long as this does not change, I don't think there will be much space for improvement. Jorge, one follow-up question. Uh, Important judicial reforms and independence have been weakened, and the government has done very little to strengthen the investigative capacities of the Mexican police. In your view, what is the objective? Well, I think the objective is to try to show results immediately in the short term. Unfortunately, it seems to me that there are no intentions to engage in transformations that would take more than six years to achieve. And most of the changes needed to improve security conditions and the justice system in a holistic manner would take more than a presidential term to pay off. The consequences of this are dire. Since some of these changes are regressive, the expansion of the list of crimes that merit pretrial detention, for instance, although it may result in immediate actions by authorities that could produce political gain, it works against due process and further undermines the justice system as a whole. The initiatives to try to curtail ill the adversary justice system are also dangerous. It is similar with the investigative capacities of the police. It would take longer than public officials with less than four years left in office would need to deep changes to consolidate. And if there is no clarity in what the role of police forces is, it is naive to expect changes for them to fulfill this misunderstood role. Jorge, you have a lot of experience in working with this. Can you please tell us your perspective on the cost of doing business in Mexico? I have to say that if we are talking about why Mexico matters, it is true about security, security at the border, of course, living at the border. But also, we are one of the most important partners in doing business with the Americans. And uh, we are a very important place where American American invest their money and where many American businesses are running. So all that means when we are stick together, I remember a Mexican ambassador saying, we are not planning to move in the near future, so we are stick together. We live together. And um, when you talk about doing business, doing business in Mexico, and I'm not talking just about the executives and how much it costs, but more important than that is uh, in order of making business and how much do you spend, and more important than how much you spend in protection system and security system, is which are the business you actually can make if you have security. I work a lot with mining and the energy sectors, and um, believe me, security can make a difference of doing business or not if you are imposing with uh, with kidnappings and blackmails that just make it impossible. I even uh, have an experience that is public we can talk about with uh, the Coca-Cola company in Guerrero. They actually had to stop making business because there was no way their trucks uh, get into the uh, into the area because the uh, drug dealers were the ones who could actually sell Coca-Cola. 
So that's part of the of the culture of security. That's the, the part of the having elements of a failed state next door. If your neighbor has problems with the house, you, there is no way you're not going to get involved. It doesn't matter if you have a big wall in the middle. They are going to get by anyway. So you better have it, a better neighbor there. Thank you very much, Jorge. Juan, as you know, Mexico recently passed a law imposing restrictions on foreign agents operating in Mexico, actually including members of the CIA, the DEA, and even the FBI. It accused Washington of fabricating drug trafficking charges against former defense minister General Cienfuegos. He made public a five-year DEA investigation against the general. This new law marks a huge reversal of U.S.-Mexican cooperation. How do you see the prospects of resetting that cooperation? As Jorge mentioned, we do have a border and what happens in Mexico actually will impact the United States. Are you optimistic? Thanks for having me on your podcast, and I feel privileged being alongside Dr. Jorge Tello. You know, you've, it's a daunting list that you've uh, read off. I would add one additional action on that list, which was the offering of asylum to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. I think that's particularly provocative. All these actions are provocative, of course, and it provides a devastating and disheartening backdrop to a Biden administration coming in and wanting to find commonalities and work in conjunction with an AMLO government. These actions are unheard of, right, among friends and certainly in the Mexico-U.S. relationship. It's unnecessarily brash. It's uh, combative. It's insulting. So that's the challenge before you. And I think the prospects are, are really not that good. The first thing that happens is it ends up restricting or hamstringing U.S. cooperation, which is number one. Maybe AMLO doesn't care that much, but the administration certainly will. And worse than that, this unilateral release of the restricted, privileged U.S. documents and doing so publicly without consulting with the U.S., how do you rebuild trust after that? Right here, it's sacrosanct. It's it's commonly held belief that the, this is simply not done, and it's done with a level of malice, if nothing else. Right. So, if you're the Biden administration, how do you deal with something like that? Again, this is simply not done. And in fact, I would say, as a word of caution, it could be dangerous. But the U.S. and the Biden administration has no choice. The future of the U.S. and Mexico is interlaced and intertwined no matter what decisions we make, right? So you have to find a way ahead. And I think the Biden administration is going to do it through di through diplomacy and confidence-building measures. We, we have to get to a place of commonality. Juan, López Obrador managed last year to avoid the designation of the Mexican drug cartel trafficking groups as terrorist organizations. Do you anticipate this threat to, to be back on the cards? <laughs> That's a tough one, right? Because the use of terrorism laws, which by design are supposed to be flexible, are supposed to offer you a lot of power and might and also convey a political message of sorts, you know, that's scary stuff. And I think AMLO recognized that right off the bat. No country wants to be labeled with a terrorism label. And that would have been uh, devastating to foreign investment and other larger prospects that the AMLO administration would have for Mexico's future. But also conveys, I think, a fear of unilateralism. 
you know, counterterrorism laws offer the United States an awful lot of flexibility to operate unilaterally, even on foreign soil. That has to be a particular fear to someone like AMLO and um, the nationalist that he is. I personally don't think that counterterrorism laws are necessary at this point. I think it's a bad precedent. I think it's a misuse an abuse and misuse of, of those laws. But it worked for uh, the Trump administration, right? Trump got exactly what he wanted out of the threat of being able to put this forward. So, of course, by definition, the Biden administration is cut from a different cloth. And it, I would find it very difficult for them to, to reach the same conclusion. But if they don't reach, if they don't have the progress that they need through diplomatic and other channels, maybe it'll be necessary to implement something like this. I, I don't see it an easy decision, but I also don't see it as an impossibility. Jorge, it appears that the military under AMLO is a crucial domestic ally, and its participation in traditional civilian activities has increased significantly. They're now building public works such as the airport, they're managing Mexican ports, they're responsible for controlling illegal immigrants, and even for distributing the vaccines. More than 70% of the new National Guard are also military or Navy personnel. Can you please explain us what is the rationale behind this strategy? Well, I think the participation of the military in public security in law enforcement responds to a real national emergency. There may not be an alternative to change that in the short term. The problem is, as you mentioned, that the role of the military is in playing in other areas. It should continue to collaborate and support the government in public security tasks, but at any case, its role should be understood as temporary, and there should be a plan for civil authorities to replace the military in these tasks as soon as possible. The Mexican military has shown a very institutional behavior. There is no doubt about its strengths. Despite its structural problems, it is still is one of the most reliable institutions of the federal government. The president's decision to use the armed force for all the tasks you mentioned is interesting, especially since he promised to get the military off the streets when he was a presidential candidate. He even mentioned it that if he could, he would disappear the armed forces since Mexico did not need them anymore. So, Either he was convinced that he does need the help of the Navy and the military when he took office and realized that the situation was more complex than he anticipated. Or otherwise, he's given them all these tasks to change the nature of their activities, to spread them to things which would de facto dismantle the armed forces as we know them. I do believe that we need the Mexican military for good. The armed forces are, without doubt, the strongest institutions in Mexico, as I already said. We must protect them, take care of them. They are too valuable for the governance of this nation. President Lopez Obrador's decision to use the armed forces in all these areas may also have to do with time. Maybe the calculation is the presidential term is not enough time to strengthen the capacity of police forces, and that this discipline and characterizes the armed forces can be useful to have them comply with the task that the president asked them to do. The consequences, of course, is that they will use the tools they have 
and information they receive to address these other issues, which is dangerous in the civil realm. I am also afraid that the lack of resources allocation and the operational inertia will delay the development of proper civil institutions, let's say the National Guard. Jorge, as a follow-up, as you said, the Army is one of the most important institutions in the country. They have the discipline and the training to certainly take on many of the country's dangerous criminal groups. But the army is now at the center of one of the biggest crises in U.S.-Mexico relations. Are they untouchable? Untouchable? I do not believe that. I don't think any military or Navy officer in Mexico would accept or have that kind of thinking. We may have an endemic corruption problem, which affects both civil and military authorities. But there are no elements to say that there is a case for the armed forces as a guild or group. I understand the relevance of the question, but I don't like it what it, what it implies. If you are referring to the case of General Cienfuegos, we would have to say many things about the Mexican institutions, but also about the American, the American ones. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not only thinking about negative issues, but also about the difficulties we have to work together, given the enormous asymmetries of all sorts between the two sovereign nations. I think that the decision of the past two administration and the current one to put the armed forces at the center of the security policy and the social health and infrastructure policy in the case of Lopez Obrador administration has resulted in them having a significant and increasing, I must say, amount of power and leverage in decision-making. As a consequence of this, I think there is no doubt that they are more exposed to corruption and to political ambition. The initiatives are there and it poses risks. On the other hand, I do not see the armed forces conditioning in any way their cooperation with the U.S. authorities. There are disciplined institutions. We have to accept that there is a problem that makes the armed forces seem untouchable. Sometimes, and that is that they are ruled by different schemes of accountability that a ju justice system that do not compare to civilian mechanisms. So they are supposed to subject themselves to different standards, especially since they do not ask to be included on all these public security and other tasks, but they are only following superior orders. That's what I'd say. Thank you, Jorge. Juan, the COVID-19 lockdowns disrupted temporarily the operations of the Mexican drug trafficking groups, but they quickly came back and adapted the same methods that proved the inefficiency of the wall as a way to curb illegal flows. They mostly, as you know, rely on drones, tunnels, sea smuggling, and many other methods. Fentanyl coming from Mexico has not stopped and is killing users at unprecedented rates on both sides of the border. The lack of cooperation will certainly keep hurting many people. How do you see the U.S. reacting to this threat? And is do you see any improvement in tackling this very important issue? 
Well, the you know the first task at hand, I think, is for a Biden administration is to define what they actually want from a Mexican security relationship. Let me repeat: What is it that they want this relationship to look like? Right? What is it supposed to do? I think we've been on a parallel track, but not identical one for a long time. The priority in Mexico is to provide security. The priority for the United States is to combat drugs. And so while there are overlapping you know, areas of interest, they haven't been identical. I think we need to do a, a better job of lining up those objectives if we're going to be successful. And you know, you've talked about a whole list of threats. And as a new administration walks in and sees those, they also see some things that are a product of the COVID-19 era, right? One of which is a little scary to me as we see a greater number of the cartels involved in what could be called sort of Pablo Escobar-like displacing of governance, right? When there is COVID-19 relief or there is some sort of assistance by cartels to local populations, that wins them over. And then conversely, when they do something different from that and they threaten governance and, and stability in key pockets of Mexico, this uh, this is dangerous. This ends up being a challenge or a threat to AMLO. I don't think he fully appreciates that this threatens his ability to govern, and it threatens the central government. So that's another image sort of that the Biden administration seeing. And then you you talk about COVID-19 era also offering up a new phenomenon, or maybe not new, but a new polish on it, which is the cartels showing off their new weapons, their new uniforms, and their new armored vehicles. These vehicles that are very imposing and are they're homemade, and you may put their effectiveness into doubt, I wouldn't. They're designed to, to fight rival drug gangs as well as to uh, hold off the Mexican authorities. So, you know, you start seeing this, this evolution of the cartels in a certain way that COVID-19 era has portrayed for the administration. So, And so what's the solution to all this, right? It's, we actually know what the solution is. We're just not, we're not doing it. It's a whole of government approach. It's the ability to chew gum and walk at the same time, to simultaneously address the root causes in society, as well as the law enforcement aspects. And we do that, you know, everything from the provision of social programs and employment, which the AMLO administration likes, but they lean too heavily on. It's the same mistake that we made if we relied solely on law enforcement action. So we know what the solution is. We need to work on everything at once. And that's not beyond the capability of these two you know, mighty, large, powerful countries. But I'm going to go back to this prevailing environment of distrust that we need to operate within, right? Because no one's going to jump in and start working. We've seen reluctance on the side of the AMLO administrations and hesitancy on the side of the Biden administration. So that leads to a, a really a necessity of confidence building measures. And I'm going to offer a couple of ideas here, you know, something really important to Mexico and that I think the U.S. has, has just done insufficiently effective on is the control of arms trafficking, right? That's number one for, for Mexico. 70% of the weapons that are, you know, confiscated during during operations end up having some sort of U.S. signature or origin. That's number one for them. But it's not number one for the United States. We need to get those two positions a lot closer. And while that's not new, I think we need to put some specifics to that. I would love to see, for example, the U.S. coming clean on the Fast and Furious operation. Right. Let's have let's do a report 
intended to explain in detail what the operation was about, what it was intended to do, what how, where it was successful, where it failed catastrophically, and exposes, exposes to our, our Mexican counterparts in a way that they understand and have a chance to ask questions about so that we can finally put this, set this aside, right? It's painful. No one's proud about it, but it's something we're going to have to get past. I would also offer that on the the other piece that the U.S. obligation is on demand reduction. And while every day we do more, it's simply insufficient. But it, I think it might go a long way to invite Mexican officials to come in on, again, a bird's eye, not a briefing, but to get to see actually what we're doing, the amounts of money that we're dedicating, not talking about it, but showing it and sharing. I think that that would be some of the confidence building measures. Likewise, I think we need to come up with a combined or a joint plan, not a strategy, a plan. Let's find an operation that we can both agree upon that meet the objective of both countries where we can decide that we're going to, in the short term, and with very clear objectives and with an idea of what we want the results to be, we can galvanize our forces and we can gain and restore the confidence that has been lost between the two countries. Just just take a you know, break off a piece that we think that we can work together and and be successful on. And finally, I would say that the United States has a chance to, during this period, to review the departments and agencies that are involved, that that team, the number of that team, and the composition of that team. And what do I mean by that? The U.S. tends to have a large footprint, an overly large footprint. And I think that's intimidating to the Mexicans, right? It's natural for that to happen. It's because we come at the situation from two different cultural perspectives. In the US, we think that what we're doing is we're taking everything that we can in any corner of our government that could contribute to solving the problem and we throw it at it. At the Mexican perspective, it looks like an incursion. It's overwhelming. Why so many, right? Our footprint, I think, needs to be smaller and there's probably a way that we can reduce it. Why so many agencies have to be inside Mexico? One thing we've learned during the COVID era is we've learned how to work remotely. Maybe more of, of these resources can be in the U.S. and at the disposal of Mexico and, and U.S. authorities inside Mexico. Or we reduce or condense. You know, we're in an era where it's certainly possible that U.S. law enforcement can be seconded to another U.S. law enforcement organization, or they can be a detailee. So one agency can hold three, four other agencies under its umbrella, rather than having this proliferation of U.S. agencies that can intimidate our Mexican counterparts. Is that really necessary? So these are just some of the thoughts I would you know, throw at you at that question. Juan, you mentioned firearms, and it is true that firearms from the United States make their way to Mexico, fueling the power of the Mexican cartels. Will the Biden administration really be able to tackle this issue? And they have spoken about sort of doing the background checks. Will that help actually reduce the flow of guns down to Mexico? Will that be enough? Mariana, I don't know if that's going to be enough. And I'll be honest with you. I think that this quickly becomes a domestic issue for the United States. You know, in the in the U.S., anything that smells of gun control uh, will soon be, you know, incendiary and will draw dividing lines when what we need to be doing is come together, not divide. And so you have to be very careful. I, I would I would like to think that we need better investigations and better intelligence 
and not so much the issue of law. We've got a lot of laws on the books. I think we need to enforce them and use the tools at our disposal. I'm a little concerned with that because I know that most of the weapons come from Arizona and Texas. And that, of course, you know, through a gray arms market or the abuse of gun shows and other mechanisms like that. My thought on this is we just need we need better tools and not so much more laws. Jorge, do you foresee a path to reset the relationship and actually make a difference? Or do you envision a return to a past in which Mexico was not seen as a trusted partner? To answer your question first, when you said, are we going to return to the past? I'll ask myself, which past are we talking about? We have had a fantastic time of cooperation during Bush-Clinton era and Salinas Cedillo's administrations. And I can refer to those because I knew them by myself. Before that, perhaps you're right, we were emerging from the Reagan de la Madrid administration when things weren't, weren't that smooth. It was a bad time. And it, it was not used for anybody. The bilateral relation has cycles as any other relations. But the will to keep it on the right track stems from the common sense of the common need. There is no way to solve our common problem, and make no mistake, it is a common problem in an unilateral way. We need the Americans as much as the Americans need the Mexicans. I believe there are aspects of the relationship that do need to be revised. But what concerns me is that this may be sought through confrontation and not as a result of amicable negotiation for better understanding both parties' needs. Let's hope Esteban Moctezuma, the new Mexican ambassador, is able to set the conditions for more constructive dialogue that results in a bilateral security agenda to please both countries, despite the present rhetoric that could be little more than a tool for political reasons. President Biden and his team have a deep knowledge of Mexico and the region. There are good reasons to believe that we are going to be fine. We know each other. We know about our weakness and strengths. Jorge, are you optimistic? And that relies on what the Juan is talking about. If we think that this is going to be solved by the federal governments, means Mexico City and Washington, they are too far away to know what is going on at the border. And I remember when we were working at Juarez and El Paso, if you look at them from the space, that's the same city. And when we realized that we have in Juarez the worst security levels, at the very same time, El Paso was the best place in the United States. And why that so? Because of the same reasons, because that's what the organized crime in the region needed to be fine in El Paso, and they could do anything on what is. But it, it, they are part of the same problem. If we think it is just a matter of law enforcement and federal government, I think we are going to do little in the future. And I think this is when it's more important what Juan already said, because if we don't involve, if we don't get involved the people if we don't get involved, and that's very important, especially for Mexicans in the Mexican side, the local governments. And of course, I'm thinking the important role that the federal governments have 
as uh, leading the whole process. But I like what Johan mentioned. I like that we both countries should be working in a general plan. And you said, and I think that's right, not just on a strategy, but a plan that involves, involves a real object in the long terms and a reality for the short term. Is there any chance for the Merida Initiative to become the plan that Juan was talking about? Well, President López Obrador already has made clear that he wants to end with the Merida Initiative and replace it with a mechanism that is in line with his government's priorities of social development. Although the Biden administration approaches of privatizing social issues to curb undocumented migration, I do not think the same logic would apply to deal with criminal organization. This could certainly become an issue to increase tension with the U.S. government. That said, it could be the case that the two parties negotiate and the final result could include budget for social development and also cooperation in the parts of the agenda that the Biden administration is most interested in. It is certainly critical that we find a way to reestablish trust and security cooperation between the two countries. As Jorge said, we are not only neighbors, we actually live together and work together. And on that, unfortunately, we have come to the end of this podcast. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 